Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, pureandsimplebible.com. I am so thankful to be back with another couple of episodes in a mini-series entitled A Royal Priesthood. The young man who is joining me has been on before. His name is Brother Bryce Whitaker. He's from the great state of California, getting ready, I believe, to move to the great state of Texas. And uh, so he's back on the program, has brought an excellent study about Jesus as the great high priest. And this is part one of two, so you want to make sure to come back next week or whenever this episode posts so that you can check out the second part of this exciting miniseries. Let's jump into the conversation, shall we? Since you were here last time, you've had the chance to study and live with Mike Criswell and, and other opportunities as well. Why don't you give us an update over the past year of your life, just some of the things that you have found helpful in your, your spiritual growth? It was an awesome opportunity this summer to get to, to live and study with Brother Mike Criswell and worship mm -hmm. with their congregation. They have an awesome group of people, and there's some people there that I really got my first chance to to really lead Bible studies and learn how to have studies with people. And I don't have an evangelist at, at my home congregation, and so a lot of my things had been trial and error up to this point. And it, it was just a great opportunity to, to really get my, my feet wet doing that. A lot of us, even, even evangelists, are trained through trial and error. In fact, I remember one time when I reached out to Mike, I was living in Cambodia, and I was asking him questions because I felt like I was trying to figure it out as I go. And I remember his humorous reply was saying, ah, yes, the school of hard knocks. We've all, you know, <laughs> we've all been through it. Could you give us a, I'm putting you on the spot. Could you give us a 30 second summary of, of what you did to maybe, or what skills you learned about personal Bible studies that you hadn't known before you studied with Mike? First thing that really sticks out to me is one of the first days I was with Mike. I asked him, I was trying to pick his brain. I said, Mike, how do you prepare for sermons? How do you write your sermons? And he was driving. He just looked over and he looked me in the eye and he said, I don't. I just study things until I know it and then I can go and teach it. Mm. And uh, that being prepared was probably the biggest thing um, that stuck out to me. And, and just really connecting with people, going out of your way to go to people's houses and make, making an effort to make connections um, and then ultimately putting in the work to be prepared. Um, and just the dynamic of, of a lot of people get intimidated when you want to have a one-on-one -on -one study and just making people feel comfortable and, uh, and involved in asking questions and just having it be a really fluid uh, learning experience. Um, that was a really good, really good thing for, for me to be able to experience. Good. Excellent. I think a lot of young guys and gals want to know how to study the Bible better with others. And what I've learned, for what it's worth, and maybe you, you kind of picked this up as well with Mike, was that really there's no magic formula of do this, say this, and your study goes well. But like Mike was saying, you study to show yourself approved, as uh, Paul said to Timothy, but then also giving the person that you're studying with that space to feel comfortable, that they don't have to know everything and, and that you won't know everything, but that together, if you're just consistent with the steady time, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, it's going to reveal itself and it's going to pierce our hearts. Absolutely. So the comfort in, in not having to have it all figured out was very helpful for me. 
maybe maybe it is for you and for others who are listening to this as well, is that the, the pressure's off. You don't have to have the answers because the Bible will, but you got to put in the work to know what the Bible says. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out too to, to Brother Luke Martin from Kansas City. He's, I think he's 17 years old, and it makes it so much easier when you can tell that someone is just a sponge for the Word of God. When they're seeking out studies multiple times a week, all the time, when they're they're reading on their own and then wanting to have studies with everybody and with uh, and, and just showing that desire to grow and to learn. Um, I know a few young guys that are under 18 that just have that sponge mentality that they just want to learn and grow all the time. And it makes our job so much easier when when we're preparing studies and we have people that want to mm. that want to participate. Mm-hmm. It is awesome to, to get to spend some time with him. It makes me excited, like you said, to hear somebody, a teenager, especially who's uh, like Jesus said, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's that's always exciting for people who are older to see that now. Uh, speaking of the New Year's meeting, you preached uh, the final evening. You gave the invitation, right? Yep. So there's they're kind of a special honor just in that of being trusted to close out the preaching on the young men's service. Yeah, for sure. And you preached a five-minute sermon on our priesthood, right? Yeah, it was kind of hard to fit a uh, like a 30-minute sermon into to five minutes of three main points, but tried to, to make it work. Well, that's a sign that you're at the end of your young men talk age. Oh, boy. <laughs> when you start to struggle to only teach for five minutes. I mean, when I first started teaching, maybe it's the same for you. You know, putting together a five-minute sermon was a daunting task. You felt overwhelmed. But as you get older and more experienced, suddenly you're like, I've got too much to say. How am I going to make five minutes work? So it sounds like you're, you're at that point where it's time to phase out of the young men's talks and get into the just the the regular teaching and preaching of the church, right? Maybe. Okay, good. And you preached on royal priesthood, so I, I came up and found you afterwards and said, uh, when I found out you were going to be down in our neck of the woods, I wanted you to come in and record it with me. So here we are, right? Sounds good. Um, Why don't you maybe help our listeners get in that mindset? What was your motivation for this Bible study? What what kind of got you interested in it, and, and and how did it get started? So when I was studying with Mike, and we were traveling around to a lot of his meetings over the summer, I noticed that a lot of his studies that he'd, he'd give at these meetings were very Jesus-centric, just really teaching on Jesus as our Christ, as our Lord, and I, I really like that. I think um, we need we need more of that, frankly, in, in a lot of our, our teaching and meetings, and so it kind of got me on that train, and it started with a little study looking at some scriptures on Jesus as our high priest. Mm-hmm. Um, the book Hebrews really is the only book that um, that talks about that, and really our faith hinges on Jesus being our perfect high priest. And it, it kind of, looking at, at the scriptures on that, led me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I noticed that Peter puts a lot of emphasis on the idea that we are the New Testament priesthood. Uh, when I was looking at, at high priest and, and things uh, relating to all of that, um, Peter says twice in one chapter that we are God's priesthood. You know, when the scriptures say something once, it's important. But when something's said twice back to back, um, I think a lot of emphasis is put on it. And um, I I believe 1 Peter, uh, there's some debate about who it's written to, whether it's a Jewish or a Gentile audience. I tend to believe that it's a Jewish audience because of all the references to the priests and uh, and just some some things in the the book. But it kind of just prompted a study on 
our priesthood. Mm. And ultimately, we'll get to Jesus being mm. our high priest. But it was a really cool study for me. And, and it was very, I don't know, it, it hit home for me in certain areas. And especially the first point that, that we'll get to. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I believe it's written to a Jewish audience. And there's some, some scriptures in it that I believe if someone, was, someone had grown up in the Jewish faith and they were reading this from Peter, the light bulbs would be going off. Like, oh, okay. I remember reading this or learning about this, reading the scroll of Exodus or in Leviticus. And so I believe it's written to a Jewish audience. Um, and I believe it really would have had a big meaning for them. Um, but for us today, I think the, uh, the application is, is really strong. Yeah, and... I don't know uh, how much percent of the church in America has Jewish descent, and so they would be trained classically in in Judaism. I have had the the privilege to baptize or or to be part of rather converting um, a man who did come from a Jewish background, and so he was familiar with some of the traditions of Judaism. But uh, I myself am a Gentile, and you know my culture is is definitely more Gentile than Jewish. You said something earlier that um, I want to go back to, and that was that knowing Jesus is our, our high priest and knowing the priesthood, I think your words were it, it our faith hinges yeah. on that. That's a pretty strong statement, that our faith hinges on this. How about you just elaborate on this hinge? Like, What would I be missing if Jesus is not the high priest, or if I'm not a priest, what am I going to miss out on? Yeah, so in, in Hebrews, it really goes into why Jesus is the perfect person for us, why Jesus is the perfect high priest. And, you know, without Jesus, our faith our faith is nothing. And for Jesus to be, we'll get into this in, in the last the last points that I make, but okay. for Jesus to be the, the sinless sacrifice for us, if he wasn't that, if he wasn't that advocate between us and God, if he wasn't the sinless sacrifice, our faith is really nothing. That we need that um, to to mend that relationship between us and God that um, has been broken because of our sins. And Jesus fulfilling that role to be the the perfect high priest, to be the advocate with us and God, uh, our faith is, is useless without that. Wow, you know, I in First Corinthians fifteen, uh, talking about if the resurrection didn't happen. Paul uses similar language. He says our faith would be, we'd be of all men the most pitiable, I think is what he says. Because what's the point of living godly where you deny the flesh and live righteously if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? And you're you're stating that the priesthood element of Jesus' ministry to us and the way he advocates with the Father, there's a similar uselessness. If he's not a priest and he's not advocating then it does seem like our salvation's at stake absolutely okay wow that's that's a big assertion and i agree with it by the way so i i don't want our listeners to think that i'm setting you up for a fail um i agree with it but i just want our listeners to maybe take a moment to kind of absorb that that this there's a lot on the line here when it comes to jesus as priest now you've got three kind of big ideas and it, maybe it's good for uh, us all to have a mental picture or a road map. How, how are you going to break this study down so that we can better understand the royal priesthood? Yeah, so we're going to compare our priesthood to theirs. And I think it'd be, be good if we started with the scriptures that Peter gives 
that that really make this connection here. Okay. And so we'll start in First Peter chapter two. We'll read verses four and five, and then skip down to nine. And Peter here, he's writing to an audience that we talked about grew up in the Jewish faith, but we know that God meant the Jewish faith to lead into Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so these are people who have converted; they're Christians, and so. It applies just as much to us, even though we didn't grow up in the, in the Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. But Peter says, coming to him, this is Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And skipping down to verse 9, he says, but you... This is in contrast to the Jews who had not accepted Jesus, those who had rejected him. It says, but you Christians are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I think the idea here is a lot of times I think we, th we, we think that the, the Old Testament priesthood just went away. But what Peter here is showing is that it's like a changing of the guard. It's a passing of the torch. That instead of the, the priesthood just going away, it's transitioning to us Christians. Yeah. That me and you, not just the Levites, we're now God's priests. And I think that, you know, what Peter says here is that we're the ones who proclaim God's praises, that we're the ones who offer spiritual sacrifices. And uh, I believe that's like the, the Romans 12 living sacrifice kind of mm. uh, mentality. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Peter, through inspiration, makes that connection just to stop there. Right. And the, the three points that we'll be looking at. Uh, that compare our priesthood to theirs is that we carry the presence of God with us like the priests carried the ark. And secondly, we'll look at the priest's inheritance mm -hmm. really has a lot of similarities to ours and our mentality that we carry it with. And then, as you said, finally, we'll look at our, our high priest, that they had a high priest in the Old Testament priesthood, but ours is so much greater. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in Hebrews uh, chapter and verse it says something about a shadow of the good things to come. And I couldn't help but think of that when you were talking about that priesthood, this changing of the guard. It was almost like a shadow of Jesus as the high priest, of us as living priests. Um, in his name, we are the fulfillment of what that shadow was intended to be. And people got so obsessed with that shadow that they couldn't see the one who was making the shadow. And so you're going to help us uh, see the one who was casting this shadow into the Old Testament, and that shadow being the, the Old Testament priesthood. Now, you, you take a moment um, to talk about uh, disproving a, a false doctrine. It's kind of unrelated, but... Uh, as far as the three points you're making, but it, it's helpful for us who are priests ourselves. So why don't you maybe elaborate on that real quick, and then we'll jump into those three points. Yeah, it's not related to the points, but I think it's kind of an important thing to look at, that if every single one of us as Christians are now God's priests, then we don't need someone else to be that priest for us. So a mm -hmm. lot of people from other groups, mm -hmm. uh, they believe in having their own priests and um, confessions specifically to the priests and all those things. Um, but just in the three scriptures we read, we don't need anyone else. Yeah. We are all individually the priests of God. Yeah. And First Timothy 2 and verse 5 says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
we have a mediator. It's not another human priest. It's Jesus. And Romans 8 talks about the Holy Spirit as an intercessor for us. Mm-hmm. And so even just in a couple scriptures, the Bible is very clear that we don't need anybody else to be that priest for us. That's a pretty liberating thought, isn't it? The idea that I don't have to go somewhere, and if I can't get there, then I'm not going to get the benefit of that priest's assistance. That at any time in the day, I can intercede because I have a mediator who's going to uh, be able to help take my petitions directly to the Father. What a blessing that is compared to those who are living in a mindset where it's like, I can't do it until I get to that specific location for that specific person to help me. It's tough. Yeah, having that that individual relationship with God that, that's just so special that every single one of us are now God's priests that can, that can go to him and that can um, just have that special connection with him. Um, it's just a beautiful thing. It is. Now, you said, so I'm, tra- I'm going to try to uh, remind our listeners that the first big point is about how priests carry the ark. Yeah, so there's a connection between our priesthood and theirs, and it's found in how God chose to carry his presence. That The Ark of the Covenant, uh, I talked about this a little in my Haggai study and the last time I was on, but the Ark of the Covenant was basically the focal point of God's presence. That that's where he would appear uh, between the cherubim on the Ark. And it was only God's priests, the Levites, who were allowed to carry the Ark. Right, right. And they had to, there was some, some pretty special ways that they carried it as well. Um, Exodus 25, 22. I'm looking at your notes. Yeah, those, those are the verses that talk about God being there between, uh, between the cherubim. That's where God would speak. And so the, the ark was incredibly important to these people. And we know the tabernacle was a mobile place. They were putting it up and taking it down and carrying everything around everywhere. And so this was a constant thing that would have to be moved and, and taken around. Right. And it was a job that only God's priests had was to carry the, the focal point of his presence. And I think about... Um, so movies like Indiana Jones make it pretty superstitious, right? Oh, you know, yeah. That they opened the ark and, and suffered the wrath of God in, in this you know, fictional film. But there are, there are biblical accounts of, of people who do not respect the ark. They didn't respect God's presence, and they, they paid the price for it. I'm thinking about, is it Uzzah? Yep. Right? Second Samuel? Uzzah? Uh, how about you just... Elaborate on that account for me so that our listeners can maybe know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. So the ark was being taken back, I believe, to Jerusalem, uh, or at least taken back. It was being transported, at the very least, if my memory is failing me. Um, But it wasn't being transported in the way that God had laid out in the scriptures. Mm. And so I believe they put it on just a cart, and it was being carried around by some ox when it should have been carried uh, with some poles by Levites. Right. And the, uh, the... the cart starts to, I don't know, it hits a rock or something, or the oxen trip or something like that. And the ark starts to move or it almost starts to fall. And Uzzah reaches out his hand and he stops the ark from falling. And the scriptures say God strikes him for his error. He mm-hmm. was not supposed to do that. They were also transporting it not in the way God had prescribed. And so God really cared about how this ark was taken care of and about his word not being broken. Okay. And so how would... You know, if I'm thinking about this for the first time, uh, I've got this holy box. It's very special. There's a lot of rules surrounding it. Somebody who broke the rules paid a very steep price. 
but you're obviously one that connected to the Christian age. So what exactly should I be seeing here about me carrying God's presence if I'm the priest? Yeah, so the connection with us is that just as God's priest in the Old Testament carried around his presence, we're supposed to do the same now. That us as Christians, we're called to carry God with us wherever we go. We're called the temple of God in 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 3. And I think the beauty of the scriptures is God gives us a picture of what this is supposed to look like. Hmm. In Acts chapter 8, we read about one of the darkest times in early Christian history. Stephen has been stoned for his faith. He's the first martyr for Christ. And I like to, to put myself in the scenario of the Christians back then. Mm-hmm. If someone has just been killed for professing Christ, things would have felt real if they didn't already. And, you know, if, if your, your brother dies for having the same faith you do, that would be terrifying. And then you have Saul being authorized to go house to house in Jerusalem and drag the Christians and, and their families into to prison for confessing their faith. Yeah. And verse one, it tells us that because of that persecution, everyone but the apostles scatter out of Jerusalem. They leave their their homes and their families and their lives behind. But what we read about the response to this, it's not exactly what you would expect from people running for their lives. In Acts eight and verse four, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Mm-hmm. That was their focus. This was just regular people with regular lives, regular jobs, regular hobbies and families carrying God and the message of Christ with them wherever they went, no matter what was going on. So what I'm what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, we might think that they're afraid and they're fleeing, but instead of scurrying away and hiding in the shadows, they're they're carrying something with them and sharing that as they go. In a similar way to that the ark is being carried. Is that's the point you're trying to make? Yeah. So just as the, the priests were carrying around God's presence, um, those early Christians were as they were running for their lives, their focus wasn't just being scared. It was carrying God's presence mm-hmm. and his message with mm-hmm. them. And, you know, I like to make that comparison. They're we're told to carry our crosses, but they were carrying their arcs too. Oh, nice. I like that. Um, I, I see in your notes you, you're about to talk about X twelve. What is really interesting is I just recorded a podcast with Nathan Batty called Deja Vu in Acts 12. It's actually going to be coming out just before this one will come out. Um, So our audience will be very familiar with Acts 12. And uh, as you make this brief point, uh, I'll just share this thought from his recording. And that was, uh, yeah, Stephen died. Yeah, people were arrested. But the apostles were really the untouchables up until Acts 12. And so it's like a whole new jolt of fear when the Apostle James is put to death. And it's kind of like that was the final straw as far as like uh, these guys should be able to do anything, and then now they're dying. And so that same fear seems to be present. But but what happens next? I was just talking about that same thing on Sunday when we were running through (laughs) this. Uh, But yeah, in Acts 12, as you heard last week in the podcast, <laughs> Herod had killed the Apostle James. As you said, like what I talked about with Stephen is things would have felt real when your brother is yeah. dying for his faith. And then, like you said, the apostles seem to be invincible. They're the ones that have this extra measure of all the, the gifts and, mm-hmm. and all the powers. And they're healing all these people and they're working all these miracles. And then the first one goes down. Things, if it wasn't real for them by Stephen's time, it would have been then. Mm. And... um. Herod saw how happy that made the Jews killing an apostle. And so he throws Peter into prison. Mm-hmm. And after 
uh, after God kills Herod and Peter's freed. Verse 24 says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. In a situation where people are dying for their faith, where people are being thrown into prison, the word of God grew and multiplied. Yeah. Yeah, you, you read over that verse real quick if you're just like skimming through Acts 12 as though it's not important. But you're right. This is kind of the conclusion. This, this verse is explained in the whole narrative. Because of all of these things, the word grew in the hearts of these people. They're, they're not fleeing like cockroaches that are running away from light, just trying to scuttle into darkness to survive. They're going with the presence of the Lord. I like this visual, the idea that as Israel marched around, you knew where they were because in the daytime there's a, a pillar of, of cloud or smoke, and then at nighttime there's a pillar of fire as they're wandering in through the desert. People know where the ark's going to be. People should know where the presence of God is in our life. That's kind of, I think, the, the visual you're illustrating here, right? Yeah. And for me, the beauty of this is that it wasn't just the apostles, that the, the, word, the word of God wasn't growing and multiplying just because these now 11 guys, or I guess 12 if you count um, Paul eventually, um, it wasn't just because those guys were going around and teaching everybody. Mm. It wouldn't have been possible for mm -hmm. that number of people to have this big of an impact. And so it was just normal people, everyday Christians, God's new priests carrying their arcs around, carrying the presence of God and his message with them wherever they went. So... Yeah, let's maybe talk about that for a second. You're 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 taking it away from the the heroes of faith, so to speak. You know, the apostles and, and like them, and you're suggesting that everyone can be carrying this presence around, and that, that really we all have this duty and responsibility to. And uh, as proof of that, um, Romans chapter sixteen is kind of where you show in this study that there's a there's a lot of people in there that really that's what their mention is kind of in this little chapter. Why don't you elaborate on how this kind of helped your study come alive? Yeah, Romans 16 wasn't a chapter that I'd really, um, really thought about too much until the last few days when, when I was reading it. Um, but it, it's really encouraging to me that it's a bunch of regular people that Paul gives a shout out to at the end of this letter. Romans is a dense uh, a dense book with a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, a lot of faith and everything right, in it. Right. Um, but at the very end of it, in the last chapter, Paul shouts out almost 40 people. And some of them mentioned with entire households, with the, all the people that meet in their house. This could be like a hundred people that Paul shouts out for doing the work, for carrying the message of Christ with them. And we, we know some of the people a little more in depth on the list. We know Aquila and Priscilla. Mm -hmm. They were tent makers that, that had met Paul and were helping him out. Um, Phoebe is described as a servant of the church. And so this wasn't just people that had set themselves aside to be professional trained evangelists. And it wasn't even apostles. We know Timothy's mentioned he was trained, but this is just a lot of regular people that Paul is giving this special shout out to at the end of this book and saying, all of these people, the people that you should be greeting, the, the people that are helping me, that are carrying God's message, that are, are serving Christ with their lives. And, you know, this is especially encouraging for me because one of my biggest things that I've been working through in the last year is deciding is becoming an evangelist the path that is right for me, uh, the path that I should be taking. Would I would I not have the impact that I could have if I don't go down that road? And scriptures like this, Romans 16, really have kind of helped me be at peace with the decision of if I don't become an evangelist, which, which isn't my my short term goal, that I can still have an impact for the kingdom. Even, even if I don't 
um, become a, a fully trained and ordained evangelist. Anybody can have that level of impact and help the word of God grow and multiply. Amen. You know, it, it was these tent makers who were tent making when they met Apollos and uh, taught him more accurately the, the word of the Lord. Uh, it was these tent makers that took in Paul and worked with him and planted house churches with him and that he would come back too. So you're absolutely right that um, the the ministry of people who had a what we might call a nine to five job, the ministry that they were able to accomplish for the church was was just as meaningful and valuable and important as the characters in the book of Acts who are going to be going from town to town and preaching the whole time. I think a lot of people feel guilty about that, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. Um, we do need more preachers that said often, you know, we need more preachers, right? Heard that all summer. Right. We also need more elders. We need more deacons. We need more elders' wives, deacons' wives. We need more Aquilas and Priscillas who, uh, you know, frankly, I'll just give you a personal example. Um, when we went to Cambodia, I needed money. <laughs> I, need, I need to buy groceries. I need to pay my electric bill. I need to pay my rent. Um, and I needed Aquilas and Priscillas who worked and gave money to the church so that that money could pay for my bills in Cambodia. And there are people who are really good at making money, and they're very passionate about the Lord, and they put those two things together, and it's because of them that people are able to go live abroad. So to anyone out there who feels guilty about going to a 9-to-5 job, it's because of you that the gospel goes to new places. And yeah, we got to have people who go, but I, I couldn't have gone. If I couldn't buy the tickets, right? And I, I know there's a lot of uh, young people that are that are in my shoes too, or that have been in my shoes of of that debate: is Am I wasting any ability that God has given me if I don't full send and commit to to being a preacher? Mm. Um, and I think it, it, it's scriptures like this that that really have given me peace with with decisions. Absolutely, and frankly, uh, for uh, we're kind of getting off track here just a little bit, but. Uh, I want to see more men who are saying, you know what, I need to be, I need to be a godly man, period. I don't need a title. I don't need to be a preacher. I don't need to be an elder. I just need to be godly. And what's interesting about the role of elder is that really it's just a godly man who's proven himself. And there's nothing superhuman about elders' roles. Like they raised their family. They loved their wife. They were an honest person. They were good with their money. You know, they were generous. And all of those qualities, it, we're celebrating a man of faith. And we're saying, hey, you know what? You're trustworthy. So, again, motivating our young people, the title is not what it's about. I don't, I don't get a preacher's badge. At the end of the day, you know, the ark was really just a wooden box. At the end of the day, it was a wooden box covered with gold. Of course, that's nice, but it's just a wooden box. And it's the presence of the Lord that made it so special. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That our, our good works, us being a, a priest and living those lives with the presence of God, it's supposed to point other people to God. Like you said, it's not supposed to point anybody to our glory, our titles, or whatever it may be. But it's pointing, everything that we do is pointing to God. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the 
the essence of us being the priests today. You kind of wrap up this idea with with about the priesthood, uh, and you bring up from First Peter three fifteen that we need to have a defense of the hope that lies within, and and you emphasize this idea of this hope. Elaborate on that and help our readers make that connection. Yeah. So this whole point is about the visibility of God's presence with us, and you know when Peter writes that we have to have a defense for our hope. An implication of that is that our lives should be showing hope, that our mm. lives should be radiating the hope of Christ, that it should be visible and something that, that people see around us. You know, we wouldn't need to defend our hope if people don't see it to ask about it. Right. The whole point of, of defending it is that someone's going to see this and ask me about it, and I need to be ready to show them why I have this hope in Christ. Yes, yes. Okay, so summarize for me, uh, maybe before we jump into the second point, uh, God's Ark of the Covenant, which is the Ark or His presence that we carry. What is it? Why does it matter? How does it work, etc.? Give Give me the 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 Reader's Digest version of our first point we've just gone over. All right, twenty second summary of the first point is that the priests in the Old Testament would carry around God's presence. They carried the Ark of the Covenant. It was a job only they had. And you parallel that with us today. Peter said that we are all now the priests of God. And our job, we read about from cover to cover of the book of Acts, is Christians carrying around the message of God, God's presence. One of the things in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, literally God's word mm -hmm. that they were carrying around. And that's what we see the, the faithful Christians doing. Everyday normal people carrying around God's word with them. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so we have a visual of us carrying around the presence of God. But that's not the only thing that priests did in the Old Testament. And it's not the only thing we do as Christians. So you, at this point, uh, start a second major idea, and that is that as priests in this new priesthood, we have an inheritance, the same way that in the Old Testament, uh, the, the priests, the Levitical priesthood, they had a, a specific inheritance. So let's begin with this. Um, maybe what is an inheritance? If you want to take a minute to flesh out what that meant for the Levitical priesthood, and, and then we can jump into you know what it means for us. Yeah, so for the, the priests and for all the people of Israel, when they conquered the Canaan land, God was going to give that land to them. And so that was their inheritance, what they were receiving. And God chose to do something a little different with the tribe of Levi. He didn't do the same with, uh, with Judah or Dan or any of the other tribes. Oh, it's a cliffhanger, and you're going to have to come back next week when the next episode airs to find out the answer to this question and much more. Thank you, Bryce, for joining me uh, a few months ago, actually. This has been sitting on the digital shelf, so to speak, until I had the time to edit it, and here we are. So uh, grateful for that conversation, grateful for this young man. He is such an encouragement to me and to others as well. So come back next week, and until then, you can go to the website, www.pureandsimplebible.com to check out all of the free downloadable digital resources for Bible study usage, for your own personal development, and for sharing with others. Until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true.
about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, his rules in some trouble.